As build, this episode is about the forest frontier and the factory farm. We'll take the forest frontier first, so rest assured we'll have all the thrills and spills of monkey eating before we get onto the mundane brutality of pig farming. Indeed, the forest frontier and the factory farm are actually, as we shall see, at times intimately linked. As we turn from the forest to the factory farm, the focus will gradually switch from the more ecological concerned with the interface between human society and natural ecology, to the more sociological, concerned with how society works, with what is the dynamic behind the long-term patterns of human relationships, which themselves shape that interface between society and ecology. My name is Terry Dunn. I research, script and narrate these podcasts. You're listening to Peters and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land. We are very much on the land in this episode, looking at agriculture and resource extraction, and this is a rebel tale a tale rebelling against the profound lack of attention given to the ecological origins of the current coronavirus pandemic. This is the second part of the Peters and Sheep pandemic special, with the main emphasis on the ecological origins of modern disease epidemics and pandemics. The third part, the next episode, will look at one particular cultural response to a 19th century disease epidemic, namely the cholera outbreak of 1832, and how the response to cholera intersected with the ongoing social conflict of the time. Our current episode's topic is something I've been schooling myself on since the outset of the corona. It is not my usual scholarly stomping ground. That said, understanding the social processes behind the development of zoonotic disease epidemics is actually not really a million miles away from rural sociology or from agrarian political economy. And what I've tried to do in this podcast, and in the last, is blend in a bit from Ireland's agrarian social history, or indeed environmental history, and to mix that into the pot. This episode is closely linked to the last episode. If you missed that, do go back and check it out. It's called The Landscape of Lime. The episode you listen to now, though, does stand on its own. And I will recap some of the last episode's content in a minute. Now, before we go any further, remember to subscribe. You can subscribe to the Peers and Sheep podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. Also, please remember to share the news of new episodes. And thanks to everyone who has been sharing the project announcements, it is appreciated. Just to recap from the last episode. We saw with Lyme you have a reservoir host, the creature in which the pathogen, the disease-causing agent, usually resides in or on. That agent can be a bacteria or a virus. Now, the reservoir host with Lyme are variants of rodents. The tick is the vector that carries the pathogen from one animal to another so the bite of the tick will infect it with Lyme. As human society changed the landscape in parts of the eastern states of the United States, natural habitats were broken up, there was less biodiversity, so the different species of rodent, which are the reservoir hosts to Lyme, have gone into a happy time where they have less competitors and less predators, and so their population grows, and so humans experience more Lyme disease. This is all about habitat destruction, simplified ecosystems, declining biodiversity, and so on. So there's a particular prevalence of disease in that context and also greater opportunity for diseases to leap from non-human animals into humans. So in the forests, let's start with Ebola and AIDS, both related to catching and killing wild primates. In the case of Ebola anyways, the reservoir host is a bat, but it is not uncommon for a virus or other disease-carrying pathogens 
to travel through several animal species before getting to humans. There is a pattern with some of the first Ebola outbreaks, a pattern of logging camps and mining camps deep into the forest. Camps in out-of-the-way places whose workers are fed with bushmeat, or wild game as we call it when white people are doing the hunting, killing and eating. Now obviously people always lived on or near the forest and always hunted, but more population, because you have that resource extraction going on, is more possibilities for a pathogen to make the jump into humans. Um, and also, if a pathogen jumps into a comparatively isolated population, it's just gone into a cul-de-sac, a dead end. But if circuits of resource extraction like logging roads have been driven into the forest, that is an opportunity for the pathogen to spread. Then there was also, in the years running up to some of the earlier outbreaks of Ebola, around the turn of the century, uh, a tilt in parts of West Africa away from fish, from fish as a protein source and towards wild game. Why might this be? Could it be to do with overfishing by export-orientated giant factory ships off the coast of West Africa with detrimental impacts on the local fishing industry? For a picture of a factory ship, Irish listeners might remember the Atlantic Dawn, built in the late 1990s by an Ackle Island fisherman, based out of Killybegs Harbour in Donegal, funded by an Irish banking syndicate and the Norwegian government. It was, at the time, the biggest and most technologically advanced fishing trawler, capable of catching processing and freezing 400 tonnes of fish every 24 hours. The Atlantic Dawn was expelled from Mauritanian waters, that's in West Africa, in 2005, after several years there where it became known as the Ship from Hell. It's now Dutch-owned. At Atlantic Dawn's launch, the then Marine Minister Frank Fahey described the event as one of the proudest moments for the Irish fishing industry. Basically, there is an EU-subsidised fishing fleet in West African waters operating via EU-made agreements with West African states. Typically, European fleets have moved to Africa after depleting fish stocks in their own waters. So, this is some of the background to a switch in protein sources away from fish towards wild game. So, we might say that some of the Ebola outbreaks were in a neo-colonial context. And we'll go back to Ebola later. AIDS, on the other hand, originated in a situation of full-blooded original colonialism. HIV has been traced back to the German Cameroons in West Central Africa around the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. The German Cameroons was just next over to the much bigger and better known Belgian Congo. The sought-after resources to be turned into commodities there were ivory and later rubber. Rubber because these years were the beginnings of the bicycle and the motor car, so you needed the rubber for tyres. Now, but rubber and ivory were wild resources deep in the forest and in order to get to them and hunt and harvest and transport you need labour, lots of labour. Now the problem there is the local people have their own indigenous economy and access to resources and ways and means of surviving and maybe they'll conduct some trade with you but they're not going to voluntarily transform themselves into your permanent labour force. Hence the deployment of violence on a massive scale to produce forced labour. And so you have millions of deaths, the moving of whole populations, the creation of new infrastructures and urban centres, a bunch of disease epidemics, including the introduction of syphilis, and amid this industrial scale horror, HIV. HIV made its way from a hunted chimp in a distant jungle to Kinshasa, then called Leopoldville, even in 1920, the most populous city in Central Africa. So let's pause with the potted histories of pandemics for a moment and consider the form of society driving this new intensity to the interface between humans and non-human nature. Human society has always had an ecological impact. We can go back to the prehistoric deforestation in Ireland to see that. But the central question is what is driving the modern ecological impact, which is both qualitatively and quantitatively distinct from anything ever seen before. 
we need to understand what shapes the decisions of what to produce and how to produce. Production is conducted by individual enterprises which are market dependent. Human relations are mediated to the market. Mediated to the market means what commands a profit rules. So the ecological value of a forest does not count, does not appear anywhere in the ledger books, unlike the minerals mined in West Africa or the housing developed in the northeast of the United States. There's also a short-term perspective. So first overfish Europe, then overfish West Africa. The circuit of capital, the circuit of investing, turning a profit and reinvesting, must be a spiral of growth. After all, the point of investment is to make a return, and more fundamentally, competition drives more growth. There has to be new, expanded, and more labour-efficient forms of production to produce a product as cheap or cheaper than one's marketplace competitors. Sitting still isn't an option. Compound growth is systemic, and that growth is based on the consumption of externalities, of resources which literally do not count, such as the ecological value of a forest. Let's break this down. Let's consider the likelihood of a business choosing not to expand or choosing not to adopt the latest technologies. Is this possible as a voluntary individual decision? Eventually, each product will become the more expensive ones and it will be priced out of the market or as the price of the product goes down, the business will be forced to produce more just to stay in the same place. Now, obviously, all sorts of regulatory frameworks and state policies can be brought in. But we would not have to be too given to scepticism to question to what extent could state regulation blunt the fundamental dynamic of the system. Indeed, the bulk of the state policy emphasis on addressing environmental problems is to seek to create new business opportunities. Wind farms, for instance. This is because the state doesn't exist outside the pattern I've just described. For individual businesses to grow, the wider economy has to grow and the state underpins this and is underpinned by it. Violence was always a central part of the role of the state at the very least to bring in new territories into the circuits of accumulation or to reapportion control. So what was seen in the Congo at the time of the beginnings of HIV was towards the extreme end of the spectrum, but it was not an aberration by virtue of being violent. What I'm saying here is that there is not just a relationship between human society and ecology to consider, but a specific relationship between specifically capitalist human society and ecology, and that's what lies within the current prevalence of zoonotic disease. Now, capitalist society has two particularly relevant tendencies to consider when it comes to looking at the factory farm. Firstly, centralisation through competition, and secondly, specialisation. Now, centralisation through competition means that some companies will outcompete others and take over their market share, while specialisation refers to market efficiencies which are built into concentrating on a small number of product lines. So that tendency to specialisation is where you end up with monocultures either animal or plant monocultures, where enterprises are dedicated to producing one type of animal or one type of crop. But centralisation through competition doesn't always happen so easily in agriculture. For one, there are ecological barriers. Agriculture is bound up with the seasons and with the length of time it takes an animal to mature or a plant to grow, and so turnover time is prolonged. That's the time between your initial investment and your return in the form of profits. That makes agriculture an unattractive investment. And private property itself can act as a barrier to centralisation. And then there is social conflict. As we saw in one of our previous episodes, farmland was extensively redistributed in 20th century Ireland, arising out of a period of uh, social conflict. But a couple of notable barriers of agriculture escape this ecological barrier, and maybe to some degree the barrier of land ownership. And it is in those branches that escape those barriers that you see a brutal 
survival of the fittest upscaling, and marked centralization through competition, where you can have all year, year-round production in sheds. That's chickens, pigs, and mushrooms, occupying a small area in comparison to cattle and capable of intensive production on a large scale in terms of yields. Even in that context, though, the model has developed whereby the actual farming is still outsourced on contract. So what has developed, or been developed, at least in the United States, is a situation where every process to do with chicken production from the genetic code of the chick to the chicken nugget is in the hands of integrated agribusiness. Literally, the same company supplies the particular chicken breeds, the specialised equipment to raise them, and then processes them into meat. It does all that, but it does not actually raise the chicken. just controls all the processes upstream and downstream from the farm. Part of the reason is even with the seemingly total control of the battery farm, there is still that unpredictable ecology, in this case the possibility of disease. That helps make it the least attractive part of the industry to invest in. So chicken industry companies outsource the actual chicken farming. We are still talking about something which is really scaled up, intensive, lots of animals in the one place and those farms tend to be located in the same areas because they are concentrated where the processing plants are. So you have a concentration of population of a particular animal and they have short lives, which is actually creating an evolutionary niche for virulence in pathogens. That's to say that typically the optimum situation for disease-causing agents is not to be too lethal because if it's too lethal, it will hamper its ability to spread. So a pathogen and a host will have evolved together. The pathogen to be less disruptive and the host to be more immune. That doesn't apply when you have dense populations with short lives. Moreover, battery-farmed animals are from one particular genetic stock. They're a monoculture. They don't reproduce naturally, so they don't have the opportunity to evolve immunities and are genetically similar, which is another proneness to disease epidemic. So you have your swine flu and your avian flu out there and the potential for a really serious pandemic out of that. And they relate to this concentrated battery farm style and production of poultry and pigs. Pork and poultry are the cheap mass produced meats and the sectors have been a really big growth area in recent decades in the global south, particularly in China. In fact, the very first foreign company to open operations in China during the process of liberalisation way back in 1979, was a chicken company. So what we're talking about here is a growing income and improvement in the standard of living in China, something which is a profound success story. There was a 2008 world poverty study which found the proportion of the world's population living on less than $1.25 a day halved between 1981 and 2005, falling from 52% of the world's population to 26%. In obsolete terms, that's more than 500 people moving out of extreme poverty. So that's people escaping chronic hunger, which is a constant lack of access to food of sufficient quality and quantity. In recent figures, about 805 million people in the world or one in every nine experience that. Or it's people escaping hidden hunger, which is poor quality diet with insufficient nutrient intake. That affects about 2 billion of the world's population. But it was in fact China success in reducing poverty that accounted for the greater part of world poverty reduction. With 600 million fewer people living there living on less than $1.25 a day in China in 2005 in comparison to 1981. There's a persistence of deep poverty in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Also, you have to remember that other countries which had an improvement in their rates of dire poverty 
did so in part because of the Chinese demand for their minerals and other resources. So there is this process of industrialization and urbanization in China, which is having environmental consequences. Though this is not particularly Chinese, it is more that just with China, there is now yet more of it. We can look at that as a disaster, but it is also capitalism's big success story of our lifetimes, as we can see from the reduction in poverty. Like the same way meat consumption went up in the West as part of the general improvement in living standards in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In fact, meat, particularly beef in the United States and also Australia, was seen as a badge of citizenship because European migrants had not been able to afford it back in the old countries. It was also seen as a badge of whiteness, where beef-eating European migrants contrasted themselves favourably with the more recent rice-eating Chinese migrants. As I said, in recent times, Chinese economic growth made for increasing meat consumption. So meat was the growth area, the place to invest. In the 1980s, a cohort of Chinese farmers started to specialise in pork or poultry production. Once you get to the late 1990s, some of the farmers who specialised in pork and poultry were being wiped out because they cannot compete. That is, there is a process of centralisation of capital through market competition. As I said, there is a particular ecology to this. Pork and poultry production is much more given to large-scale factory-like production. Other branches of agriculture are constrained into long periods where you wait for the crop to grow, but chickens can be turned out assembly style. Now, it is worth pointing out that this same process went on in Ireland in the period between the 1940s and the 1970s, particularly in the 1960s. Pork and poultry production used to take place in the yard of every farmhouse and in the yards of the houses of farm labourers. This little trade was wiped out in a process analogous to that in China. It is simply the case that these branches of agriculture are particularly given to being scaled up. Given the skills and equipment they had, some Chinese farmers who owned pork or poultry farms moved into the so-called wildlife trade. This is the often exotic animals which are actually sometimes farmed rather than hunted and are basically a high-value product for high-status consumption in certain regions. At this juncture, it is worth noting that there is and was a trading game in Ireland, rabbits in the early and mid-20th century, and in the 1970s and 1980s, up to 35,000 fox pelts were exported annually from Ireland, and in more recent years, there's the trade in venison. So, some of the sinews of the wildlife trade are actually the very unwild spaces known as farms. This is where you have the game animals coming in as possible vectors of disease. Even if they are actual wild animals though, as with bushmeat in Africa, we can't talk about that simply in terms of wilderness. The trade is opened up as the frontier is opened up through other economic activity like mining or logging um, and so the game, the wild game, become more accessible. But the factory farm and the forest frontier can blend together in other ways. The biggest outbreak of Ebola was between 2014 and 2016. That was uh, the first Ebola on an epidemic scale. This can be related to deforestation to produce palm oil plantations. The bats, the reservoir host of Ebola, don't simply disappear with the forest. As with the exurbs of the northeastern United States, which I talked about in the last episode, as with them making happy homes for rodents, in fact, plantations may be particularly bat-friendly spaces. There are certainly places where humans and bats are more likely to be found together in comparison to deep forest where there are few humans and hence the plantations create greater space for disease spillovers between humans and non-human species. None of this now third wave of COVID-19 that we're stuck in the middle of as I'm recording this 
None of it is actually some freak natural disaster that somehow came out of nowhere. This podcast and the last is largely based on research from four books, which were published between 2005 and 2016. They are The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu by Mike Davis, which came out in 2005, Lyme Disease, The Ecology of a Complex System by Richard S. Ostfeld, which came out in 2010, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic by David Quammen, which came out in 2012, and finally, and maybe most importantly for what I've been talking about here, Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Influenza, Agribusiness and the Nature of Science by Robert G. Wallace, which came out in 2016. These are popular science books. This is not some kind of obscure esoterica. So before 2020, we already lived in a world of zoonotic disease epidemics. And in years to come, we still will. And the vaccine makes no difference to what's coming next down the line. Now, all human society has some degree of impact on the natural environment. Like in the last podcast, I was talking about deforestation in Ireland and the consequent creation of blanket bog in the burn. That was done centuries ago. What is unprecedented today is the intensity of human environmental impact. So to understand that, we have to understand something of the particularity of modern human society. So you've been listening to Peelers and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land, and that was the second part of the pandemic special. In the next episode, we'll look at the cholera outbreak in the 19th century, but with a different focus than in this episode. I'll have a historical anthropology hat on for the cholera, and I'll be talking about the ritual adopted to ward off the disease a strange sort of mass mobilisation for supernatural intervention that shook Ireland in June 1832. Thanks for listening. 